Friends, we are on our third week of our series through Lament Psalms. What are we calling Songs of Sorrow? We are in our third week of learning from these psalms, being discipled how to lament, how to respond when seasons of sorrow come. One thing I haven't talked as much about, but I want to start this morning by setting the tone for our approach to the text, is that lament is both something you do and something you feel. It's both an action and a feeling. And so we've been talking a lot about the action. Like we, we talked about how lament, to lament, means we turn to God, and then we bring our complaints to God, and then we ask him to do something about it, and then we trust in him. That's something we do But I also want to emphasize that lament is something we feel. It doesn't just teach us what to do. The Psalms of lament invite us in to feel with the psalmist, to feel what he is feeling, and to learn how to feel rightly about God's word and ways and the world we live in. It's important for us to know that and to think about that and to keep that in mind. Because for some of us, thinking about our own thinking, thinking about the things we do, comes relatively easy, and we think about our thoughts in terms of primarily actions. And for others of us, we just experience the waves of emotion as they come. And both of us can be drawn into this psalm. Those of us who are more thinking-oriented can be drawn into feel with the psalmist. And those of us who are more, who are more feeling-oriented can take a step back and see how the feelings of David in this psalm are are anchored in God and are anchored in his word and ways and not just overwhelming him, even though he is overwhelmed in this psalm. So I invite you to listen as we walk through. David is going to bear his heart and going to bear the broken heartedness that he feels and help us see him move in his feelings from this broken heartedness to take heart in the Lord. And so I invite us to identify with David as he does that and learn how to feel what he's feeling. We're going to start out with verses 1 through 4. I'm not going to read them again for the sake of time. I think you, Molly, did a, did a wonderful job of reading these verses expressively. But what I want us to hear in these verses is David himself unpeeling layers of pain that he feels. Right? He cries out, save me, O God. And then he says in verse 2, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. And we see him giving this illustration of deep mire, the floodwaters coming over him. I think of like walking in a, muddy, in a muddy swamp and your boot just kind of gets sucked in and you lose it. That's, that's what David feels right now, but that's coming over his whole body. He's getting sucked in to despair. He feels helpless like a boot lost in the mud, just sinking. There's no swimming against this flood of despair that he feels coming upon him. And so he cries out to the Lord, save me, O Lord. He feels hopeless from his crying out. In verse 3, right, he even says he's been crying out and God has not been answering yet. He's weary with his crying out. His eyes grow dim. Picture, Picture redness of eyes from crying so much because it's so painful. Have you ever prayed to God like that? Have you ever experienced that in your own life where you cry out about something that's burdening your heart 
and you're weary with crying out because you've been crying out so long. I think all of us can relate to the kind of helplessness and helplessness that David feels. He's peeling back these layers, and as he peels back this last layer, we see there's a unique kind of pain that he's experiencing. Verse 4, more, than, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. David is harassed by enemies who hate him without cause. They're lying about him, he says. They're even, in the end of verse 4, he says, what I, what I did not steal must I now restore. They're, they're calling him to pay back things that he never stole. Right? Accusing him falsely, bringing these things against him, harassing him, and he feels like they outnumber him. They're more than the hairs on his head, and they're more mighty than him. They could destroy him. And David is at his breaking point, we see here. Save me, O God, in other words, for I cannot bear it anymore. I want us to notice that David is at his breaking point because I think it's helpful for us to remember that even someone like David, a man after God's own heart, the one who God promised to build a house and give a kingdom whose offspring would sit on that throne forever, this same David came to a breaking point. This is not the only time he did, and this psalm is not the only psalm where he just breaks. But this is one where he breaks, and I think it's important for us to see. He even says in verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. David comes to a breaking point. He can only take so much, and that's good news because we feel that too. You're not unlike David if you felt broken by the circumstances of life, especially with people coming against you for seemingly no cause. What on earth is up with these people attacking me? David is thinking, and he's broken. And in his brokenness, he turns to God and says, save me, O God. As he turns, he sees, and this is what it's important for us to see, is that he's not really actually hated without cause. Right? Verse 4, he says, many are those who hate me without cause. And yet there is a cause behind this hatred. And it's that cause that I want us to think about today. When we think about what kind of things are bringing us sorrow, this particular source of sorrow for David is something that I think all of us need to grapple with. The cause of David being hated is not personal sin, as we see in verse 5, right? He says, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. David is not claiming to be without sin. But if we look at verse 6, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. That bounces us to verse 7, which shows us why David is hated. Verse 7, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. In other words, David could rightly complain to God, it is your fault that I am being hated by enemies without number that are hating me for no reason. Other than that, I am identified with you. God. David is hated because of his zeal for God, right? In verse 9, he talks about zeal for your house consuming me, right? And he says right after that, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, David lives, lives in a world that hates God, and he loves God. And so what happens to him? Of course, the world rises up and hates him. Right? David's experiencing these enemies coming against him without any fault of his own, even though he recognizes he is a sinner. These enemies are coming against him because they hate God. 
And David loves God, and so they hate David too. David uses this fancy word reproach. And it's one that we don't use a lot, right? But reproach, when he says, for your sake that I have borne reproach, he's talking about the kind of shame, dishonor, disgrace that comes upon someone because they don't, they don't fit in. Or they act in a way that is even contrary to what would normally be expected. If David is living in a world that hates God and he doesn't act like he hates God, in other words, he is not going to fit into that world. He's going to be looked on by the people around him as being strange and foolish and even spiteful. David says he bears this reproach. As we seek to enter into David's pain and think about how we can identify with that, I want us to think a little bit about what does it look like to bear reproach for the sake of God. Because that's what David is saying. He's saying, I am broken hearted because I'm bearing this reproach. What does that look like for him and for us? One of the things we see in verse 4 is that he's being lied about. Slander is one of the ways we bear reproach for God. In the early church, the early Christians were accused of being cannibals. Can anybody guess why? What do we eat? We eat the body and blood of Christ, right? Early Christians were accused of being in incestuous relationships. You know why? Because we call one another brother and sister, even our spouse. And if you are married to your brother or sister, that's incest and it's not good. Slander was brought against the early church because of their identification with God in Christ Jesus. Bearing reproach for the sake of the name means that we will be misunderstood by the world and we will be slandered by the world. Not only that, though, look at verse 8, what David says, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Because zeal for God consumed David, he experienced alienation from his family. I know for a fact that has happened to many of you. Where you have, because of your identification with God in Christ Jesus, been forsaken by your family members, been ridiculed by your family members, been uh, endured much pain because you recognize that something that is so central to who you are is something that you can't share with someone who's so dear to you. There's a unique kind of pain and brokenheartedness that comes from being alienated within our own families because of identifying with Christ Jesus. This is what David is feeling. He is recognizing that as he follows God, there are many in his family and friends who hate him because of it. And it breaks his heart. And it should. It is terrible. David not only experiences alienation, and that's not only something we experience, we, we experience along with David mockery for identifying with God, we bear reproach by being mocked. Look what he says in verses 10 and 11. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, what happened? It became my reproach. He says in verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. That's another way to say they made fun of me. He even says the drunkards made songs about him. We experience mockery when we identify with God in Christ Jesus. 
mockery for not participating in evil. Peter brings this up when he's talking to exiled Jews, and he says that they experience mockery from their pagan friends because they no longer do the same kind of things they do. They no longer engage in the same kind of evil they engage. We experience mockery right now when we stand against the tides of culture and issues like sexuality. We become the source of ridicule or the source of teasing or the source of putting down. We also experience mockery when we pursue holiness. Notice David is doing what's right, putting on sackcloth, being repentant of his sin. And he experiences increasing mockery. Have you ever had someone come to you and say, you just think you're so holy? Right? That's, what, that's what David is experiencing right now. Those people are saying, ah, oh, you just think you're so holy. You're, you're putting on sackcloth and putting on a show. And David's like, that's not what I'm trying to do. And yet that's what he experiences and it breaks his heart. I think one of the ways that we bear reproach in our culture today is when we identify as repentant sinners. You see, to, to have zeal for God means that we recognize that he is holy and we are not. And we recognize that we are sinners in need of a savior. And then we repent and trust in Jesus, right? That's the way it goes. But here's what happens in a culture that has no concept of that. No grace to be had. If you confess you are a sinner in this culture, you're in grave danger, right? Think about, think about this. If you confess that you struggle with the sin of lust, what are you thought of by our culture? You're gross. You're a pervert, right? But our same culture glorifies sexual perversion and promiscuity, right? But we bear the reproach because we recognize that that is evil and wicked and we confess it as sin, even if it exists in us. You bear reproach in a culture that hates grace, when you rely on the grace of King Jesus. That's one of the unique ways that we experience this kind of heartbreaking alienation from those around us. And mockery. It is dangerous to be a sinner in a graceless world. In a culture, in other words, that hates God. His people will always bear reproach and shame and dishonor. If you try to follow Jesus in this culture... People may make up songs to drink by about you. That's just the way it is. And that you may be able to say, well, that doesn't bother me much. I can deal with it. And we can for a while. David had been dealing with this for a while, right? This is why he's weary with crying out. This is why his eyes are red. But eventually you come to the breaking point. Eventually the reproach that comes upon you because you identify with Jesus will break you. It broke David And you and I are no David. Ultimately, what this reproach looks like and why we know this reproach will break us if we're just left to our own devices is because this is the same kind of reproach that Jesus Christ himself endured. The ultimate example of what it looks like when David says the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me is Jesus Christ himself. Think about his life. He did nothing wrong. He had no reason for those who hated him to hate him, right? What did he do? He healed people. He, he cared for the poor and the weak. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. 
But because he identified with his father, because zeal for God's house consumed him, the reproach, the hatred that the world felt for God fell on Jesus. And they crucified him because of it. Jesus teaches his disciples that this is normal in a world that hates God. He teaches his disciples that this is normal and that this will happen to all of them and by extension to all of us. John 15 records it this way. John 15, starting in verse 18 and going to verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Right? Jesus is bearing the reproach of God. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Listen to this. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's a direct quote from Psalm 69. In other words, Jesus is saying, this will happen to you. They hated me because they hate my father, and therefore they will hate you. And guess what? David was talking about that in Psalm 69. You see that? This kind of reproach that David is talking about, that he is bearing, is the same kind of reproach that we bear when we follow Jesus. The same kind of reproach Jesus told us to expect. If you follow Jesus, his reproach will fall on you and it will be too much to bear. It will break your heart. David did not bear this on its own, right? David didn't seek out to just bear up under this kind of reproach. He cried out to God. Jesus himself didn't even seek to bear this kind of reproach on his own. When he bore the father's reproach, when he felt the hatred that the world feels for God. Guess what Jesus did? In the power of the Holy Spirit, he cried out to his father. Right? That's why we see Jesus going and praying all the time. We see it really clearly in the prayer at Gethsemane. When he is facing the most intense reproach from the world. When he is facing the most intense hatred for God that's directed at him as the son of God. He goes to his father in prayer. Jesus himself and David do exactly what we are called to do when we're called to bear unbearable reproach. Here's the main argument of this sermon. The main thing I want us to hear and know and see from Psalm 69. The main thing it's teaching us. Listen to this. When we bear, when the unbearable reproach of Christ breaks your heart, take heart in his saving faithfulness. That's what Psalm 69 is teaching us. When the unbearable reproach of Christ breaks your heart, and it will, take heart in his saving faithfulness. That's exactly what David does. What we're going to see him do is this shift to take heart 
in the saving faithfulness of God. The question is how, though? How do we take heart when our hearts are broken? Right? It doesn't do much good to just say, do it. And David isn't just saying, do it. David is showing us what it looks like. What it looks like, friends, is lament. What we've been doing and thinking about all along, how we take heart in the saving faithfulness of God when our hearts are broken, is we lament. Right? Because remember, what is lament? Lament is a prayer in pain that moves us to trust in the promises of God. Right? A prayer in pain that moves us to trust in the promises of God. So when the pain of bearing the reproach of Christ becomes unbearable, and it will, we pray in the midst of that pain and are brought to trust in the saving promises of God, in the saving faithfulness, as I put it, and as David speaks of in the next section. We've talked about lament already in the steps of lament, and we even see them in this psalm, right? In verses 1 to 4, we see David turn to God as an act of faith. In the midst of his pain, he cries out, save me, O God. And then we see him lay out this complaint in verses 5 to 12. Essentially, God, it's your fault I'm bearing this reproach. I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying, God, I am bearing this because of you. God, When he asks, then he asks God to do something about it. As David lays out his complaint in verses 5 to 12, we see him express his faith in the midst of his pain and be brought to better understand both his heart and how his suffering connects to God's purposes, right? He understands his heart. He sees in verse 6, his heart is towards those who would hope in God. If David is not cared for, and if David hopes in God in vain, then others who hope in God are not going to have any hope. They're not going to see David's example and rejoice that God is faithful. They're going to see David's example and say, man, I better find something else. David's heart is consumed also in verse 9 with zeal for the house of God, for God's name, God's character, God's presence. Not only that, But in seeing that his suffering is connected to the reproach that God himself bears because the world hates him, David learns that those who hate him without cause are not just hating him because of who he is. They're hating him because they hate God. And that provides great clarity in how David can pray after that. And it provides great clarity for us in how to pray as well. David moves into asking in verse 13. He begins... To ask with this beautiful and emphatic transition. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Notice it takes David all the way to the end of that sentence to get to the actual request. He is just meditating on God and who he is. If we think about verses 13 to 18, notice the trouble is still there. If we compare him to verses 1 and one to 4, it's the same language, right? Sinking in the mire, enemies, deep waters, flood, etc. The trouble is still there. But what's been added to it? What's different now in verses 13 to, four, to, to 18? The difference we see is that now God is present in the midst of those troubles, right? In verses 1 through 4, it is only 
in verse 1 that God is even mentioned. Other than that, he's waiting for God and God hasn't acted in verse 3. But God is only directly addressed in verse 1. But now here in verses 13 to 18, God is all over the place. The character of God is present in the midst of David's asking. And that is why lament moves to asking God. Because it moves us from focusing on the what of our problems. Or the why is this happening. To focusing on the who of who God is. Asking in lament moves us from focusing on the what and the why to focusing on who is God. And that's what David does in verses 13 to 18. Notice who God is as he asks him to deliver him. God is the one who works at an acceptable time, verse 13. He's the one who has abundant, steadfast love. That's that chesed or loyal love that we talked about in Ruth that God reveals in Exodus. He is the one who has saving faithfulness. That is, a, that is another word that God uses to describe himself when he reveals himself to Moses as that being at the core of who he is, faithful to keep his promises. He is the one who is able to deliver, the one who is able to keep even the pit, which is a metaphor for death, from closing around David before its time. He is the one who is good in his steadfast love, verse 16. He is the one filled with abundant mercy. The one who doesn't run out of mercy or grow impatient with David, but who has abundant mercy towards David. He is the one who chooses to look to David in verse 17. He is the one who can answer the hide not your face from your servant because he is the one who chooses to look to his people. He is the one who is able to redeem, verse 18. He is the one who is able to ransom, verse 18 as well. These are words that describe freeing someone from bondage. The redeem word being the one that talks about like a kinsman redeemer, like we saw in Ruth. The one who is able to rescue, the one who has no other hope from family members. Even in the midst of David's alienation, God is able to redeem. As David looks to who God is, he asks him to deliver him based on his character. God, because you have steadfast love, because you have saving faithfulness. God, because that's the very being of who you are, deliver me, rescue me, answer me. All of these requests are rooted in that. David asks to be delivered, and then he turns and asks God to judge. And this is a strange section in verses 19 to 28, because in verses 22 to 28, we see what are called imprecatory prayers. Imprecatory prayers. It's just a fancy word to call to, to describe prayers that are about cursing enemies. Prayers that are about cursing enemies. These imprecatory prayers are strange to us because we don't really pray like that, right? Like verse 28 is just so weird to me. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. That would be a hard prayer for me to pray about someone. And yet David here prays it. Why? What do these prayers have to do with what David is experiencing? How does David pray these prayers? When we think about prayers of cursing or imprecatory prayers, it's important for us to notice 
that David, when he prays this, is not consumed with the idea of vengeance against these enemies who are hating him without cause. David is not praying, let their own table before them become a snare out of his own desire for vengeance because they have made David's table a snare. How do we know that? How do we know that? What is David consumed with according to verse 9? He is consumed with zeal for the glory of the Lord, right? What is he concerned with in his prayer from verse 6? He's concerned with others not being put to shame because of God's enemies triumphing over David. David is not primarily praying this out of a sense of personal hurt, even though the pain is real and present. He is praying these prayers out of a desire for God to vindicate God's own name. The reproach that fell on David is reproach that is because of God. And therefore, the offense is ultimately not against David, but against God. And so David prays that those who have offended God would be judged accordingly. It's rooted also in the knowledge of God. Notice verse 19. David says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you as well. Based on what God knows about the suffering that David has experienced and the wickedness of the enemies that have come against David that seemingly attack him without cause, David says, Lord, let their tables become a snare. Lord, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Lord, pour out your indignation on them. We might think that this kind of praying, the reason we don't pray this way is because this is kind of an Old Testament prayer and now we have the New Testament. But there is continuity between this and the New Testament. There, there is this idea of God judging his enemies continues into the New Testament. Psalm 69, along with Psalm 22, which we're going to talk about in two weeks, are two, are, are one, was one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The New Testament authors aren't shying away from these words because they're a little harsh. Instead, words like these are applied to guys like Judas. In Acts 1, the apostles apply this to Judas. In Romans 11, Paul applies this imprecatory prayer to the Jews who rejected Jesus. They still see the need for God to judge his enemies, in other words. They don't shy away from it. In the New Testament, as here, we see a tension between the judgment of God against his enemies and the requirement that Jesus taught us to love our enemies, right? Or the requirement in the Old Testament to love your neighbor. How do we resolve that tension? What do we do with that? As I thought about this, and it is a complex and difficult question to answer. But as I thought about this, the most helpful thing I found was to think about these prayers in the sense of praying in the way that we are commanded to pray by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. Right? The Lord's Prayer begins asking God, thy kingdom come. If you pray thy kingdom come, included in that is all of the blessings that we enjoy as God's covenant people. But also included in that, by implication, is all of the curses 
that are laid on God's enemies. Praying thy kingdom come, in other words, is the same as praying, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. This prayer is a prayer that God would judge his enemies as he has promised to do. That his kingdom would come and that he would make everything right. Again, it is not motivated out of a personal desire for vengeance. It is instead rooted in God who will judge evil when he returns. How should we then think and feel about praying this kind of prayer? As we're lamenting the kind of reproach that we bear because we identify with Jesus, how should we think about praying imprecatory prayers like this against our enemies? I want to encourage you, one, to feel a tension between what love demands and how we ought to hate evil. C.S. Lewis says we have problems with these prayers because they take good and evil much more seriously than we do. And I think he's right. But we ought to feel that tension. I think another reason we ought to feel that tension is because David, as God's anointed, speaking forth Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had no traces of vengeance in him. I don't know about you, I'm probably not able to do that. So I don't know that I could legitimately pray an imprecatory prayer against one of my enemies with no desire for personal vengeance associated with it. With no association of wanting my own way because I've been wronged. And so I would be really hesitant to pray this way. And I would encourage you to take that into consideration. Though there is tension between the requirements of love and the goodness of hating evil, let all of that tension be resolved in the cross. Because it's in the cross that both love and hatred of evil come together, or both mercy, kindness, grace, and justice come together. We see in the act of the cross, of the crucifixion, the most profound expression of love that has ever been. And we see in the cross, the crucifixion, the most profound expression of evil that has ever been. It is right to pray this and to think this way about the fact that Christ had to die on our behalf. And yet it is right, just like David does, to long for the same kind of kingdom coming that Jesus himself promised. So friends, I think we ought to hold those intention. I think the cross helps us hold those intention. I think knowing that this is the kind of thing we're praying when we pray for God's kingdom to come also moves us to be motivated to call others to come out of the judgment of God and to come into the mercy of God. In other words, knowing that God in the cross brings justice and mercy together frees us to be able to not seek our personal vendettas. It enables us instead to trust that if this person that is hating us without cause is hating us because we love Christ, if this person is ultimately rejecting God, and turning away from him, 
then God will indeed judge because he has shown us that he will judge in the cross. If this person comes to repentance and turns away from evil and wickedness, then they experience the same kind of grace and mercy that we have experienced in Christ. And therefore, we can extend to them grace and mercy and not pray imprecatory prayers against them. In other words, we should never pray imprecatory prayers like this against a fellow believer. As much as they wrong us, as much as we wrong one another, our wrongs have been paid for and we have been reconciled in Christ Jesus. So, friends, I encourage you as you think about how to pray in asking God to both deliver you and to judge your enemies to meditate on God's kingdom coming and what that means and to have these imprecatory prayers, this one and others in the Psalms, help you think through that. Asking this way, even prayers like this, reorients us away from the what of our circumstances and towards the who of who we're praying to. In this case, David praying to a God who will judge and who does judge his enemies, who is going to restore all things. David prays this way and then It all comes to a head in verse 29. I think verse 29 is a beautiful summary and turning point of the entire psalm. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. This this cuts right to the heart of what David feels and what we feel when our hearts are broken because we're bearing the reproach of Christ. I am afflicted and in pain. Save me, O God, or let your salvation, O God, set me on high. This is a pivot point for David and a key point for us because in this we have not only the summary of David's experience, but we have the summary of Jesus' experience. Jesus, bearing the ultimate reproach of God, felt this intensely at the cross. I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And Jesus himself experienced this in the resurrection, right? I'm afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation set me on high. What happened in the resurrection was that Jesus Christ was exalted on high and sat at the right hand of God. He experienced the answer to this prayer. And in him, we have a perfect example. And we have the means of how this prayer is answered for us. We look to Jesus both as an example of the kind of endurance that we're called to have. And we look to Jesus as the one who gives us his spirit and enables us to cry out with him. I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Right. This is what Hebrews 12 is talking about when it says that we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And we look to Jesus who for the joy that was before him despised the shame of the cross. He endured the cross for our sake so that we can look to him. Look what happens when we do. The the end of this psalm, the last six verses, are beautiful, beautiful praise. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. David's heart has been transformed. There's even call for universal praise, right? Let the heaven and the earth praise him, verse 34. The seas and everything that moves in it. Look what happens in verse 32, though. This is the the exhortation to us from this psalm. When the humble see it, they will be glad. 
You who seek God, let your hearts revive. In other words, when we look to God in the way that David does in Psalm 69, verse 29. And we moved, we're moved to praise and we join in praise with others. Those around us see it, are glad and their hearts revive. We, we revive fellow believers when we turn to Jesus this way. And we are revived by fellow believers when we see one another turning to Jesus this way. We join in the praise of all creation and we look towards this future hope that God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is not just a promise that God will one day restore Jerusalem. This is a promise that God will restore his kingdom reign on the earth. That all of these wicked people will be brought to account. All of the pain and suffering will make sense in the scope of the story of God's plan of redemption. And so, friends, as we think about how to pray, when the unbearable reproaches of Christ break our heart, we must learn with David here to take heart. This is what it looks like to live the life of faith. This is Jesus' answer to the kind of hatred that we bear because of him, right? How does he conclude that section in John before he goes and prays uh, in John 17, that beautiful prayer? As he concludes teaching his disciples, he says to them, I have told you these things ahead of time. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what we're called to do is to take heart that Jesus himself has overcome the world. And we do that by asking God to deliver us and to judge his enemies and trusting his character, his promises, looking to that future hope that he gives. That's all we have and that's all we need. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed help us. It is... Lord, painful at many times and in many ways to bear up under the reproach that we have because we love you. But Lord, it is worth it. It is 100% worth it. We see that undeniably in your son Jesus. And we see that undeniably even in King David's life. So Lord, would you do what only you can do? Let your salvation set us on high. Would you do what you have promised to do in bringing your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, we long for that to be true. We long for the day when everything wrong will be made right. When there will be no more reproach because of the name, because your glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, would you bring that about and would you give us perseverance as we wait. We pray. Amen.